0: Drongeloidiasis. Might not sound familiar, but Australia has some of the highest rates of this disease in the world. It is dangerous and can be fatal. Despite this, we have no national or global strategy for that matter, but we have a team on track to change that. They finally have funding to pilot an elimination program to end this disease and others like it. (music) Is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. So, welcome Professor Darren Gray and Dr. Catherine Gordon, who have landed this amazing grant which will impact millions of Australians. Thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Happy to be here. At the centre of this is a round worm. We'll get into how incredible this worm is, Strongoloides stercoralis. And can you tell us about this worm because it is incredibly well, for one, lack of a better word, clever.
1: Well, I'll start by saying that the Strongolodiasis, caused by Strongolodias stercoralis is the most neglected of the neglected tropical diseases, uh, and it's very much a disease of poverty. So the poor people all across the world, people living on less than $2 a day, are the ones that are mostly infected by this disease. And you would think that a country like Australia, which has developed, wouldn't have this disease, but unfortunately we do. And it's extremely endemic, particularly in rural and remote areas. And it disproportionately affects our indigenous communities.
2: Strongyloides is a worm, so we call it a nematode, which is a kind of round worm because they are round. Uh, it's very, very tiny. So the adults are only one millimeter in length. So it's not something that you can you know, easily see with the naked eye, you do need a microscope to look at it. It's got a really interesting and complicated life cycle. So to become infected, the larval worms are hanging out in the soil, Uh, so usually in some moist soil, which is why we mostly see this parasite in the tropics and subtropics, although we do see that in cooler regions, such as in New South Wales, uh, as well as the northern parts of Australia. So once you become in contact with the larvae in the soil, they actually penetrate the skin directly. So they burrow through, making their way into the bloodstream where they get swept up into the lungs. They actually penetrate through the lungs and end up in the alveolar spaces and they'll sort of migrate up the um, bronchioles and into the trachea. So they're moving up and that's causing irritation. So that causes the infected person to cough they then swallow the sputum and that's how the larvae then end up into the gut where they then develop into adults. So that's what we call tracheal migration. Uh, They can also migrate through random pathways so they can just go directly to the gut uh, through whatever pathways through the body so they might transit through different organs uh, to go a little bit more directly than when they go through the lungs like that. So then once they're in the gut, they develop into their adult females. So we don't actually have any males in the parasitic part of this life cycle. It's just strong, independent females. They produce eggs. We have a lot of other parasite, uh, particularly parasitic worms that are hermaphrodites. They do have the male and female parts within the one worm. But for the females, they don't have that. They just have the single sort of uterus and vitiline follicles, and they developed the eggs without any sort of masculine or male parts coming into it there. And these eggs actually hatch inside the gut. And so that's where we start to see issues with the disease because they are capable of then developing from the sort of immature larvae into the more mature infectious larvae. And so they can just infect you again without ever leaving the body. And so that's where we get uh, most of the issues. Uh, so for other roundworms, they do have to leave the body and mature in the outside environment before they infect you. These guys don't. And if you become immunocompromised in any way, then you can get really large numbers of these larvae and they're penetrating throughout the body. And they take enteric bacteria with them, so that's bacteria from the gut. And so one of the severe consequences of strongyloidiasis is bacterial sepsis. And that is something that you can die from uh, if not treated appropriately. And that includes... treatment for the bacterial infection but also the stronduloides so that you're not continuing getting those bacteria into the blood where you don't want it.
0: Is the first sign that infection or can they feel it burrowing in through their skin?
2: You can't feel it but you do get a rash around the site that they're going into so sort of um, your red might be lumpy rash. You can also get allergic reaction rash as well so urticaria and so that can occur at any time point in the infection as well. But with the initial penetration, you get like a track where the larvae is. So as they're trying to make their way through into the bloodstream, they're not always great at it, and so they burrow around and you can actually trace where the larvae has gone with the red track.
0: And it can be very serious.
1: Certainly. There's several stages of the disease. So there's an initial acute stage where you first become infected. Your immune system reacts to the worm. Then there's a chronic stage where the the worm is in somewhat harmony with your body evading your immune system constantly laying eggs and those eggs hatch in the environment to to affect other people but then also you can reinfect yourself so once you get infected you can actually hold this infection for life and then you have what's called a hyperinfection stage and that's when you become immunocompromised and that can be caused by a multitude of things but one of the things is having something like asthma that can cause the worm to flare up so the worm can lie dormant just happily for many years and then suddenly you might, you might become immunocompromised in some way and then you get this flare up of the worms and they just multiply like crazy and they overtake your body. As they move through the body they drag the bacteria with them causing the sepsis as Catherine mentioned. But the other thing is it could be treatment with steroids. As I said with asthma you get an asthma attack you get corticosteroids to treat the asthma that's that's where it really impacts. Or when thinking about COVID, there was a lot of talk about giving people dexamethasone, a steroid for COVID. Well, if you had strong alloides, you would die from the strong rather than the COVID because that would just cause this hyperinfection. And there is a drug to treat strong alloides. It's called ivermectin. And you, everyone would have heard the drug ivermectin with COVID yep. and how it could be useful for COVID. Well, it's clear that ivermectin doesn't impact on COVID, but... If you're talking about COVID, you would actually want to treat people with ivermectin before you treated them for COVID if they have the stronger Lourdes infections because if you gave the COVID treatment, they could potentially die.
0: Because it sits there undetected for a long time then it's not picked up when it should be obviously
1: well it's very very difficult to detect that's one of the problems because there's multiple ways to detect it the the sort of gold standard is looking seeing eggs in the stool but there are also larvae in the (laughs) stool but that's um, problematic um, and Catherine can talk about why that is then there's serological Methods and, and they can be a bit hit and miss at times. Well, the
2: diagnostics really depend on the disease state. If you've just been infected, you may not have mounted an immune response yet. So your uh, serological diagnostics that are trying to detect antigens uh, from the parasite or antibodies against the parasite haven't been developed yet. So most of the serology tests we have for schistosomiasis are antibody-based. So you have to wait for that window of time where you get introduced to the new pathogen and your immune system creates an antibody against it. So if you have acute strongyloidiasis, then your serology is probably going to be negative. So you're going to miss early infections. If you do stool tests at that time, uh, you probably will pick up larvae in the stool during the acute phases. You will have to wait a few days after infection so that you've got adult females, and then they're producing the larva, the eggs which are hatching into the larvae so that you get those larvae coming through. The next stage is the chronic stage, which is usually the longest period of time, so it can be in the chronic stage for decades potentially. And that's where serology tests are the best because you do have a response mounted, so you've got those antibodies that are circulating, so you can get positive serology. You have very intermittent shedding of the larvae in this particular phase, so your um, stool-based microscopy or culturing methods are less likely to be positive. And then you have your hyperinfection stage, and that's when your serology tests are actually going to be more likely to be negative because you're likely to be immunocompromised, so your immune system, again, is not working very well, so the antibodies are going to be reduced or not present at all. But you are going to have high numbers of larvae, so then the stool-based microscopy and culturing techniques will be really useful diagnostics there.
1: And quite often at this stage, you'll detect larvae in the sputum. Mm. So people will actually you can get, you can give a sputum sample and detect the larvae. And that's because there's so many worms in the body... The lungs are full of them, that they're constantly coughing up the worms, so they can do that tracheal migration.
0: I can see why it's incredibly complex and screening just would be too expensive. Is that the problem? Uh,
1: not necessarily. I, th- I think a lot of it is policy. There's not a lot, there isn't policy around it. It's, it's a neglected disease. That's, Help that's me the
0: understand, problem. 60% of some communities in Australia have this. How has it not been addressed? Like, well...
1: I don't know. To be honest, Um, it's it's people haven't found it to be important. It doesn't impact people in big cities. But also circling back to around why we don't have these diagnostics, because these are in remote communities. Mm. You actually got to get to these communities. You've got to collect the sample. Then you've got to transport the sample back to a laboratory. So, what's really lacking is a point of care test. So, if you had a test, and I'll go back to the COVID example, a test where you provide the sample, you have a little stick, and in 15 minutes you've got a result on the spot, something like that would be extremely useful. And as part of our, we're looking to develop that with our collaborators. Um, But something like that would then be very useful in actually doing population health screening.
0: goal, both of you, is to eliminate this. And you see that as entirely possible.
1: Certainly. Because there is a drug that can treat the disease, ivermectin, and there are other other drugs potentially efficacious against this as well. Called a drug called moxidectin is another one on the horizon. There's drugs available to treat treat people who have an infection. We know the life cycle of disease. It's very much a disease of poverty. It's a disease of inadequate hygiene and sanitation. So if you were to have a a program in place whereby you treated the people, you provided clean water, sanitation, basic hygiene, that would go a long way to disrupting the transmission of the disease.
0: And this prevention is a big part of your plan? Yes, very
1: much so. What we plan to do is to optimise the diagnostics, develop these point of care ones. So we actually go to these communities and diagnose people on the spot so we can treat them straight away. But then we can also implement these preventive measures where we improve the hygiene, teach people, tell them about, they don't know about the disease. A lot of people don't know what what it is. So we teach them about it, teach them how they can prevent it, have the basic hygiene hardware in place, sanitation, such that they can not transmit the disease and then not get infected by the disease. And one would think that having access to clean water and sanitation would be a basic human Mm. right. One of the sustainable development goals is provision of safe water and sanitation. In Australia, we don't have that in some of our communities, and we should.
0: How big a team will you need to achieve this? Because there's quite a few challenges.
1: A huge team, and, it, and it's very much a multidisciplinary project. The grant we got is called a Synergy Grant, and, it, and that scheme is all about bringing teams, people from different disciplines together. So we've done that. We have multiple disciplines. We have parasitologists. We have infectious disease physicians environmental health specialists, health promotion specialists. But most importantly, we have community involved. So this is very much a community driven project as well. We will co-design this elimination program with the community and then certainly the indigenous people that are involved with this. And some of our chief investigators on the project are indigenous.
0: With these bodies on the ground and this impact, surely there's other diseases that you're going to be able to reduce as well that are endemic in those vulnerable communities.
1: So st- strongyloides is very much a proxy for for diseases of poverty, and some that come to mind that are in these communities are scabies,
0: huge problem,
1: massive problem. Ivermectin that we use to treat strongyloides is the same drug that we use to treat scabies. So by treating the people with uh, with ivermectin, we will have uh, impact both scabies and strongyloides. The hygiene messaging helps with scabies. Hygiene messaging also helps with streptococcus, which is the major cause of rheumatic heart disease. This is a One Health project. We will actually improve housing. improve By improving sanitation, we'll improve housing conditions yeah. for people, so that will have a greater impact.
2: Um, one of the things we're going to also look at is dog health in communities. Yeah, they play a part. Potentially, that's one of the questions we want to answer. We know from studies done overseas that there has been strongyloides found in dogs and they've done something which uh, we call haplotype searching. So they've assigned different strains, I guess, to the strongyloides found in dogs and found in humans. And they found that there are strains that will uh, infect both humans and dogs. That is some evidence to say that dogs are important in transmission. So if dogs are obviously infected, then we have to look at treating the dogs as well because they're obviously contaminating the environment with larvae, which can then infect humans. Um, However, dogs can also practice coprophagy, so they eat feces, uh, and So if you've got an area where you don't have adequate sanitation for the humans, then there's going to be faeces in the environment and dogs are potentially eating it. So the strongyloides that's seen in dogs overseas may just be coming from the human faeces that has been consumed by the dogs. So that's something we would really like to find out because that's going to have a huge impact on humans. But also in the dogs, we'll probably also look at hookworm, which can also infect humans. And there's canine hookworm, so uh, Ancylostoma selenicum particularly, which can also infect humans, so it'd be good to have a look at the dogs so that we can treat them for both the strongyloides and the hookworm and help prevent infections to humans for those two species. And I imagine this will have a massive ripple effect on those communities.
1: Certainly, um, you know, these types of diseases, these diseases of poverty, they keep people in the poverty cycle. They don't get the good start to life. It impacts their health. It impacts their development. It's co-endemic with nutritional problems as well, mm. and they sort of impact each other, the nutrition and having intestinal worms and having you know, various other infections. It's all, it's all one big battle within you know, that people face, and it doesn't give them a good start to life. It prevents development, and it, it holds people back.
0: I imagine there's a few overseas cohorts looking very closely at what you are doing.
2: Well, yes and no, because it is so neglected. There's not a lot done anywhere in the world for strongyloides. Is it a problem in other Absolutely. parts of the world? Yes. Absolutely. So Southeast Asia is estimated to have the most number of infections worldwide so because there hasn't been a lot of studies looking at prevalence worldwide um, the estimates are done with mathematical modeling so looking at studies that have looked at it over you know the last 50 years say and there may only be one study from one village in a country and that gets included in this model so Mm. it's not exact but looking at that modeling it's Uh, I think about 300 million estimated cases in Southeast Asia alone and then also the Pacific as well. So the islands in the Pacific as well, they're the second highest prevalence or estimated prevalence of strongyloides. So it's a massive problem in our backyard essentially. That's one of the things we would like to do as well is look at strongyloides in other countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. But hopefully um, they might get some lessons from what we're doing here in Australia.
1: This is world-leading. What we do here will set the trend for all stronger lawyers, diagnostics and control and elimination. You know, we will be the exemplar for the world.
0: Congratulations on the grant. I imagine it was very hard come by, like all grants are. But you need more. Yeah,
1: I mean we've got five million from the National MRC, and people think that's a lot. But we all know with cost of living and various economic issues in the world today, that'll run out very quickly. Sanitation is, is not cheap, but it's not expensive in the long run either. There's always been a view that when sanitation is expensive and it's too expensive to do. There is some upfront costs to do, but the long term, we've done cost effective analyses for other diseases. So the soil transmitted helmets, which are very similar to Stronger lawyers, And we've shown that sanitation in the long run, it's cheaper but you need that upfront cost. We are looking for partners to to help us with that upfront cost, particularly with the sanitation component. And then we can drive up forward.
0: All of this caused by this little worm. I know with hookworm, there are certain upsides, but with this worm, is there any upside? No.
2: No.
1: This worm's a killer. Yeah. We can eliminate this disease. Certainly we can eliminate it as a public health problem as the first step, and then we can look to try and eliminate this disease and and we will work with the indigenous communities themselves such that they're driving their own health, you know, and and we will work with them, it will be co-designed and it will be an exemplar for the world.
0: And the big corporates should be coming in with guns blazing, helping with this? It would
1: be great if they did, We're, we're looking for partners, you know, we've got the grant from the government to do the research, but if we really want to make the difference difference, and go that extra mile, big corporate philanthropy, um, i appeal to the the hygiene and sanitation sector, come and join us and uh, join us in Australia, but then join us overseas. This is just the, the first point. And this is just one disease. When we talk about the neglected tropical diseases, there's 20 more. And there's the soil-transmitter helmets that are very similar. They're also intestinal worms that are, are terrible for children. Children are particularly infected with those parasites and that infects their development. They get cognitive delays, stunted growth, wasting. They don't get that good start to life that they should.
0: It's the same as malaria. Our most vulnerable, our children, are the ones that are dying, Catherine.
2: With malaria, that's certainly true. With our helminths, uh, which is a fancy word for parasitic worm, mm. which strongyloides is one of, they're more chronic diseases, so they're less likely to kill you immediately and quickly, as malaria does, but they have long-term chronic effects. So in children, strongyloides has been, or infection with strongyloides has been associated with growth stunting and mental stunting in children, and so that is obviously a huge impact on their future. So they're not able to concentrate as well and learn at school, then they're not getting their good marks, they're not being able to get into good careers and then when they are working, they're tired, they're unable to concentrate. you again stuck in this cycle of poverty because of this parasitic worm. Again, something very simple that we can do to prevent this happening and to help our children be the best that they can be. It's not like we're looking for a cure.
1: But One thing we just need to be careful of is the low-hanging fruit in global control programs for neglected tropical diseases is just treating... So treatment's fine, it's one part, but prevention is is also critical. Mm. Uh, we can treat them, but they're only getting infected again the mm. next day if we don't have the preventive measures. So that's why what we're promoting is this One Health, this multi-component, multidisciplinary approach that has uh, multiple measures in the elimination program. It's not just one thing a couple of things and that's that's what's important to break the life cycle yeah
2: treatment is good but it's better if you don't need the treatment at all yeah you can help you can donate
0: qimrberghoffer.edu.au thank you both
1: thank you thank
0: you